Hello, my name is Alex Cravero and I lead Herbert Smith Freehills Digital Law Group in the UK, US and EMEA. As part of this year's Global Bank Review, I'm joined today by a fantastic associates from our corporate technology and financial services regulatory practices, Caroline Ray, Rich Woods, Terence Lau and Wendy Saunders. They're joining me in conversation about a topic that is at the front of minds for virtually all in the financial services industry, digital transformation. Of course, digital transformation was high on the board agenda before COVID-19, but the pandemic has brought the benefits and challenges of technology into even sharper focus. One of those challenges, and the main one that we'll be talking about today, is the need to source technological capability, your skills, your experience, your tools. There is no all. Instead, there are a number of sourcing strategies that those of you in financial institutions can employ in a way that best fits your organization. We're going to look at the four main strategies, picking up some of the advantages and disadvantages that you'll need to consider when deciding which you'll use. So to get us started, Terence, let's talk about developing technology in-house. For a long time, it was commonplace for financial institutions to develop their own bespoke solutions, but that strategy took a backseat years ago in favor of sourcing from third party providers who made it their business to provide banking grade technology solutions. Would you say that this is still a worthwhile strategy to consider? Yes, definitely. Uh, many large financial institutions still have quite substantial IT departments. One reason why in-house development is still a worthwhile strategy is because of the pace of technological change, which is rapid and increasing. Keeping up with the market often means experimenting with nascent technologies, in most cases, without the ability to learn from others' mistakes. This has driven many incumbent banks to set up internal development functions tasked with experimenting with new technologies, often discovering use cases and applications as they go. It's accepted that failure is likely for these functions. As the tech mentor goes, fail fast, fail often. That's fine because experimentation is the process of learning things that can inform the widest sourcing strategy mix. Doing that in-house is far more sensible than contracting with a tech provider for them to do the same. Paying a lot of money without a defined use case or on a project with a high likelihood of failure does not make sense. In any event, employees hold a deeper understanding of the business and can deliver better tailored solutions within an environment of greater governance oversight and control. Depending on how bespoke the solution is, you also get the added benefit of owning the IPRs in the developed solution. But it's not all plain sailing, right? No, absolutely not. The challenge with this strategy is that it only really works in isolation if you have the necessary skills and expertise within your business. When it comes to technology, unless you're one of the giants, it's unlikely that you'll have the full range of capability you need to build a tech solution in-house, especially one that uses nascent technologies like blockchain or AI. On top of that, you have to think beyond the build phase and consider how you're going to keep the solution going once live. Even if your employees have the necessary capabilities, can they spare the time to support and maintain the solution? That's a really interesting point. Wendy, surely that would push most financial institutions to some of that technology capability from third-party tech providers, if not outsource the build and run as a whole? Yes, that's right. 
Sourcing or outsourcing can be a really valuable strategy for financial institutions. It can provide access to best-in-class solutions and expertise, offer greater functionality and scalability at a fraction of the cost of in-house solutions. However, with each third-party provider added into the mix, you increase the complexity of your supply chain. This can give rise to interoperability issues and can make it challenging to achieve an appropriate level of governance. Gaps may arise that could result in financial institutions assuming greater risk and responsibility themselves than they had originally planned. On the other hand, engaging with just one supplier concentrates risk into a single point and may result in vendor lock-in. And financial institutions that employ this strategy will need to comply with a number of regulatory requirements, won't they? Yes, that's right. Um, Issues with technology suppliers and their solutions can have a significant impact on the bank's operational, reputational and legal risks. As a result of this, when sourcing from a third-party supplier, banks must comply with regulatory requirements, covering matters ranging from sub-outsourcing, security of data and systems, and access and information and audit rights, to business and continuity plans, termination rights and exit strategies. There is also the forthcoming PRA and FCA operational resilience regime. Ultimately, outsourcing to third parties may mean less flexibility around governance, oversight and control. Right, and no doubt slows down the time it takes to procure the solution as well. Caroline Rich, how are you seeing financial institutions get around these challenges? Is a sort of middle ground emerging between these two strategies? Yeah, I think what's really interesting um, in looking at what the financial institutions are doing is that there's, in this sector in particular, there's lots of um, alternative M&A structures. So rather than just outright acquisitions, we're seeing lots of collaborations. We're seeing lots of partnerships. We're seeing incumbents taking um, minority stakes. It's really about these um, the incumbents and the fintechs working together. There's lots of examples um, of it in, in the market. Just to give you two, there's Lloyds Banking Group and there's um, Clearbank and Tide. And we'll see lots more of that. Um, why are the parties doing it? Well, for the fintechs, it's a great use of um of, of capital for them. They get the benefit of distribution, access, the compliance infrastructure, all the kind of infrastructure and capital that they might not um, have themselves. And the incumbents is getting them the sought after digital solutions that they haven't been able to grow themselves um, organically or in-house. Rich, do you have any thoughts on that as well? Yeah, I mean, it, I, I agree with everything Caroline's just said. And it clearly it, it a, a a joint venture, um, an incumbent taking a stake, um, an actual equity stake in a in a growing business with complementary products and services, clearly frames the relationship in a different way and makes it a, a truly shared endeavour with 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 shared risk and reward. Um, as Caroline says, that that gives the the smaller business access to to distribution um, to to the um, to, to everything that the, the large business biz brings with it in terms of expertise. And resources, potentially expertise within the smaller business too, to the extent that the incumbent firm puts puts a director or an observer onto the board. And of course, the smaller firm gets a great endorsement value from this kind of transaction. Um, it, it has the backing, public backing of a major financial institution, which is a fantastic thing for for a young business to have. Um, the other benefit I'd, I'd add from the from the perspective of the investor 
from from the incumbent firm is there's often an element of try before you buy in in these types of relationships and clearly the what what makes joint ventures both more interesting and more challenging is you're not only executing a one-off M&A transaction in, in which there's obviously a lot to think about in terms of sharing of, of liability and pricing and price verification and so on. You're also having to plan potentially several years into the future. And what that often involves, not, not invariably, but often, it is an ability uh, or the possibility that the incumbent institution takes more of the equity, uh, either acquires a controlling stake or, or, or acquires the smaller business outright. Uh, and clearly, that if that type of optionality is agreed and that's something that's very attractive to to investors um, because it gives them the ability to come in have a look at the business learn all about it as i say actually be part of the business to an extent um, and potentially acquire a greater a greater share in it in the future if it decides to this sounds like a potentially very valuable strategy for both incumbents and fintechs where do you see the issues arising rich I, I think it's it, it it's that it's that future planning and future proofing point which which, um, which you spend the most time on. Um, so so as I say, you're, you're not only executing um, a sale and purchase; you're also having to think about what does the governance of this business look like, not only now, um, but potentially in two years' time when there when there are more investors in five years' time when you know one of the early investors might have sold down and exiting. Uh, exited. Uh, you, you've got to work out how the board um, and how the, how the broader governance of the business might change over time. Um, related to that, uh, you want to regulate what happens on future fundraising rounds, how the potential dilution of the existing um, investors will operate, um, how and when people can can buy and sell shares in the business, um, or, or to what extent they're locked in, um, and ultimately, as I say, what 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 the future. Um, what what the ultimate exit of of, of the of, of the growing business looks like? Because if the incumbent institution isn't the only investor, there will likely be um, venture capital investors in there, um, who whose job is to make a return for their investors in turn, and therefore there needs to be an exit for them at some point. So what does that look like? Is it is it a sale um, out onto the market? Is this, as I've mentioned already, uh, an acquisition by the incumbent? So, so the you know the smaller business just becomes part of of the larger group, um, or is it indeed um, uh, an, an an IPO? Um, and all of that uh, needs to be thought about um, now, even if it's not going to happen for several years, um, with appropriate regulation around it, but but also with with um, appropriate flexibility. The other thing, of course, is 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 uh, regulation and the law. Uh, and joint ventures um, always engage regulation in, in various areas. Wendy's al- already mentioned um, financial services regulation um, and, and the potential um, uh, interest of, of in the UK, the, the FCA and the PRA. Uh, and if you're investing in a regulated business um, and you're taking um, above a particular stake, you will um, likely need the approval of the regulators before the deal closes. Um, you then may need to provide for what happens in the future if, as I say, the equity percentages, um, equity interest change over time. Um, and the other thing I, I would mention just 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 briefly is, is the interest of the competition regulators. And we know that in the UK, the CMA um, has taken an increasing incre- uh, interest in this sector um, in, in the last year or so. And we expect that to, to continue in the future. 
So to the extent that incumbent financial institutions are um, are partnering with with others um, or are taking um, direct equity stakes in in, in in smaller businesses with complementary services, um, then then planning for potential intervention or potential interest from the competition regulators at an early stage is something that we would recommend. Thanks, Rich. It's really interesting. And so I suppose. Caroline, I mean, perhaps not the way around for financial institutions, but but is one option for financial institutions to go the whole hog and acquire digital businesses outright? And if so, then what's the benefits? What are the detriments on that? Yeah, I think, I mean, I think we're going to see um, more and more M&A activity. Rich has talked about joint ventures and we mentioned collaborations and partnerships, but let's not forget that outright acquisitions is also um, an option that we're, we're seeing more of. We saw recently Metro Bank um, acquired UK rate setter. Uh, we know that there are some well-capitalised um, <clears throat> challenger firms out there and they'll be looking at acquisitions. <clears throat> they can be opportunistic, be strategic. Um, they've got enough cash to go out there and just buy, um, buy, buy the firms outright. And that, you know, that's a time-efficient way to get exclusive access to some of this, um, these digital solutions and the and and the expertise, and I, I think it will happen more. There's an, there's other reasons as well. You know, um, if you look at the 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 stage of the life cycle we're in and the market we're in, we're struggling with valuations. The IPO market's not looking great. Maybe there's some founders out there that think they'll take the valuation that's on offer. Um, and, and take an offer from a from a PE firm or or or, or a financial institution and incumbent. Um, so I think we'll see more in terms of um, acquisitions. Some of them are quite chunky acquisitions as well. I mean, there's a few few um, multi billion um, examples out there, and we know that in the UK, um, two of the leading equity crowd um, funding platforms, Crowdcube and Cedars. Have announced their intention um, to, to, to merge as well. So I think we'll see more and more. The challenges that you face in a outright acquisition, um, well, look, M&A, um, significant M&A always has its challenges. Um, integration is one of the biggest reasons why M&As, M&A um, transactions fail. And I think it's all the more so in this kind of sector where you, if, if, you, if you've got um, two very different cultures coming together, you've got a financial institution with all the culture that that, that, that has an incumbent, and then you've got an agile, dynamic, entrepreneurial um, uh, fintech coming into the fold. And there's lots of challenges around culture, how you develop your people, how you keep the right expertise, um, and, and keep people happy, frankly, and, and merge the two cultures together. But there are lots of challenges that you have in any um, M&A deals and, and full acquisitions. So like with other strategies, acquisitions has its place, but isn't necessarily a silver bullet in its own right for financial institutions that are looking to grow their tech capability. Uh, look, and with that in mind, before we wrap up, I was going to quickly ask each of you one final question. Um, do any of the four sourcing strategies we discussed today, developing tech in-house, sourcing, strategic partnerships or acquisitions, stand out for you as being particularly noteworthy for our financial service listeners? Terence, uh, let's start with you. Yeah, I mean, I, I'd say there's no one-size-fits-all solution and one should mix and match one's sourcing strategies depending on the nature of the technology being acquired or developed. 
So, for example, if something is very commoditized, for example, um, enterprise cloud services, then of course it makes sense to source this externally uh, to, for example, um, Amazon or, or Microsoft or something like that. However, for certain more critical bet the farm type type technology, then strategic partnerships, for example, are, are likely to, to be the way to go. Wendy, what about you? Um, yes, no, I'd agree with what Terence said there. Um, from my perspective, we're seeing financial institutions combining sourcing strategies, um, particularly sourcing and strategic partnerships. Rich, are you same as uh, Terence and Wendy, or do you have a particular one that stands out from your side? Yeah, I mean, obviously, um, from, from my perspective of, of what I spend uh, most of the day doing, um, in, in, in relation to, to joint ventures and, and minority uh, investments, the, the, you know, the, this is something that might seem scary for for financial institutions. Um, I suspect that that in general, and this is a generalisation, that they're more used to doing um, wholesale, you know, hundred percent M and A deals, where where you buy a business uh, and take control of it and integrate it, um, and taking only part of a business, or, or certainly you know, minority stake, where you, where you don't have outright control, um, can feel scary. Um, because you're invested in a business, you're associated with it, but but you 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 can't control it. Effectively, you're acting a bit like um, a venture capital business. Um, however, more and more financial firms are doing this, and Caroline mentioned some of some of the um, some of the great examples of this that we've we've seen recently, um, and and indeed in other sectors um, across consumer and industrials um, uh, and others. Um, Clients of ours are setting up their own corporate venturing units to do exactly this. Um, so it's something that that is happening more and more, particularly in a world where um, a lot of businesses um, do have available cash um, and and uh, it's difficult to obtain a, a decent return on capital elsewhere, um, especially in a world of negative interest rates. So so we think this is is something that's going to be happening more and more. For the reasons we've discussed, you should never go into a joint venture lightly, um, but because um, you know it's not something you can just terminate and walk away from. Normally, you're you're locked in it for some time. Um, but but the potential upsides are 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 very significant. So, as Terence says, you should always look at this on a case by case basis. But for the right deal, um, the, the the right business, the right investment, um, we think this is something that's going to happen more and more, and we're looking forward to to working with our clients on them. I think, Rich, that's really um, good observation. And I think um, f- from from our experience to your first point, I think the large financial institutions have really started in the last two or three years to get their heads around this. Yeah. And, yeah, it does seem quite scary um, at first and goes against um, some of their traditional strategies, particularly in terms of level of risk and in terms of level of control that they would like to have. Uh, going forward. But I think we've seen, Rich, over the last couple of years, uh, the financial institutions really um, getting their teams to understand this and, and realising that yeah. this is the way forward if they want access to the the tech that they're interested in and they're um, adapting in the right way. That's really interesting. Thanks, Caroline, and thanks everyone for that as well. Listening to what you've all said, I think the takeaway for me is the need to strike the right balance between each of the different strategies if you want to capitalise on the benefits while avoiding the pitfalls of each. 
What's right is no doubt going to differ from business to business, depending on risk appetite, organizational structure, existing capabilities, strategy and vision, and so on. But I guess creating a sturdy tech foundation on which to build your digital business depends on finding that right mix. And I suppose that leads us to the end of our podcast today. This has been a fantastic chat. And thanks to each of you, Caroline, Rich, Terence, and Wendy, for your wonderful insights into this fascinating area. If you've enjoyed this conversation, check out our other Global Bank Review podcasts, which are out on both Apple and Spotify. And remember to download a copy of our Global Bank Review publication, which is jam-packed with some great articles that look at everything from compliance and LIBOR to the opportunity presented by ESG. And with that, I'll say thanks again to each of our speakers and thanks to each of you for tuning in. Until next time. You have been listening to a podcast brought to you by Herbert Smith Freehills. For more episodes, please go to our channel on iTunes or SoundCloud and visit our website herbertsmithfreehills.com for more insights relevant to your business.